0: So if you hadn't written, um, because they couldn't tell oh, you, wow. you know, and you were who you are right now in this moment and you had this opportunity again, you know?
1: I'm gonna give you a very honest answer. Yeah. I would do it again, but I would do it entirely differently. I feel that while I spoke to the people in my life about writing it, I didn't necessarily honor the intensity of what it might mean for people that I care about. I didn't honor What my power over the narrative might mean in a very almost I don't know not even a metaphysical way but just like you author this narrative with that has your partner in it and the people you love and your siblings and your mother and although I think I try to be honest but also sensitive and also you know there are no villains and heroes I do think that yeah just it adds to a whole emotional process of healing or generational struggle generational healing and then also the other people who I love in my life that aren't part of my family like my partner have uh, uh, is now it's now part of their story and I don't think if we're very honest and I would give this advice to anyone that was writing this kind of book like even if you talk to someone about it and it's, it, the significance of it and how people might feel about it a while after even um, and what it brings into your cosmos um, is very intense
0: This is the Freedom After podcast by the Nelson Mandela Foundation My name is Nawo Mokhopa And you're listening to Kelly Eve Korpman.
1: Not, I don't regret it. I won't say I regret it. But I wish I had done the process of it differently and I would do it differently knowing what I know now. Mm -hmm. And being more healed, I guess, now. It's kind of, it's memoir, creative nonfiction style, basically. And like the loose thread of it is that for a long while my dad was missing, like we hadn't had any contact with him for years and I was coming to terms with like what would it mean if I never see him again or if I get a call like that he's dead somewhere and we are, like, you know, you, you have to identify the body, or if I run into him on the street and just absolutely like no no one had seen him for many, many years. And the story didn't really end up being just about that, but through kind of engaging with that process there were a number of like themes that came up i guess that formed this memoir it's such a weird word um (laughs) because like a memoir sometimes makes you think about like somebody's life has the story and usually it's someone who's done something incredible and then it's like from a to b to z point it's more (laughs) like an exploration of yeah i would of like essays around things that that brought up and weirdly I sent in my final draft of the book I didn't really like actively go on this mission to find my dad like there were too many did in like I didn't like go on this hero's journey and like scour the streets or like Mm -hmm. but I sent the final thing in I still hadn't like Seen or heard from him, in, in in through throughout that whole process, those number of months, and then just after I did, I got a phone call from him. He had been taken into hospital, uh, like a mental hospital, and I rewrote like the ending after well, having right. spoken to him. And yeah, it was it was really interesting how that how that happened.
0: What is the book doing for you now?
1: If I was gonna answer honestly, honestly, like I really do have some distance mm-hmm. to it now yeah. because. And I don't think I'll ever write something that personal again. But what it did feel like was, it was a catharsis in a way. And I said what I needed to say about myself at the time. And sometimes I read it and I'm so embarrassed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you're mm-hmm. sewing your own head. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely maybe opened up the avenue for me to explore stories in other kinds of way, because it feels like this big vomit of just like, mm-hmm. this is everything up until this point. Of like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm free a little bit. <laughs> <to like> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly how all of it came out, it was, it just, yeah.
0: I think when I think about, uh, I suppose, parts of, the, of, of some of your work, I forget the, the author of this quote, but it goes like, um, we need in every corner a set of angelic troublemakers who will move their bodies like wet sand between the cogs so that the working parts no longer work against us. We are something... Um, it's like an old guy, American, African-American activist. Wow. I believe he did a lot of work in HIV. Listen, I don't want to no, lie. No, you no, no, but lie, yeah. it
1: doesn't... Like, it's just that's mm. beautiful, beautiful But yeah,
0: like I think about the, um, the occupation as well, for instance. You know, th- this book as well. Um, and Colored Mentality. Um, Your personal life is so politicized and political, necessarily, you know what I mean? And I guess I'm wondering how that's left you.
1: number one is that I've always had a partner in varying forms of the word in Sarah who's always done it with me and to be, like, we've done so many things together and I think to know that you have someone like, um, holding you, even if it isn't, like, in a romantic way or even, it's just in a very, like, sincere, kind of, like, you're not alone kind of way. And then secondly, I also have, I have privilege. I mean, I'm not structurally privileged, like I'm still, you know, hustling from check to check. But the amount of um, risk that I can take on is significantly more than a lot of other people who do the same work because I come from a middle class privileged background, because I have this nice academic education and I, you know, articulate myself in a way that's very possible because I'm light skinned, because um, I have various social protectors that I think mean that I have various kinds of things of responsibilities like we all we all have our things and we all contribute in various ways but I do think that as an artist as an activist as someone who does this work I think I am and I'd like to be in a continuous kind of state of awareness for how, for what kind of risks I can take where and to do that because I have the positionality to be able to do that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, It also makes me think about the the word coloured. And how, I think recently as well, there was this, uh, listen, I'm I'm scant on the details, but there was this African-American, I believe, who came to Cape Town, uh, 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 a famous person, a celebrated person, you know, Um, and was called coloured, and was furious because, of course, you know. Yeah. um, What
1: what that means in the U.S. context.
0: Exactly. And then, of course, now I'm, I'm... wandering around your work on colored mentality as mm. well
1: <laughs> mm. so that's interesting like uh, Sarah's unfortunately not here now because I would have loved her to you know it's it's our co-work it's a body of work and like that for us I think that piece of work was really important because when we came out with it it was so much more controversial than it is now which I think speaks to like how that dialogue has been evolving over a while and I'm not in, at all saying like we kind of led the charge on it but I think it was a A kind of contribution in a body of work that up until then had existed in lots of kind of academic fields and like kind of brought this thing to social media and then a lot of other things existed in the cosmos of it but I've watched this conversation become far less controversial and I think with that example like I obviously respect the like someone coming from the US being called that could be so would be so traumatic but it also just speaks to like cultural nuance right and like coming to a an african country versus like a european country and um, we like i guess we have the same like if you think about how so much of so many of our narratives are shaped by the global north but also by the like in terms of when we look at like black lives matter and movement movement based work, like on a global level and the kind of like knowledge production that we see on Instagram and all like a lot of it is rooted rooted in um, like black African American tradition, which is great, which is, which is cool because they're also like really good at and also well resourced at stuff like narrative work and like Mm -hmm. investing into like what it means to build a campaign around a thought or, you know, to like, like that's, this is why you like, that their work, like, I think, my own opinion, like, in, in the States, like, crosses these wide borders because there's this deep investment in not just the action, but, like, the narrative building around that, so the wide sideways segue. So, that's really cool. But that also means, like, if I think about, so, just this experience this past week, I've been at the Nelson Mandela Foundation in this program, co-designing this Africa regional hub with a bunch of African fellows and the little that I, the, the lack of knowledge that I have about how people move, identities that people occupy, mm. around the continent, is terrible, you know. And mm. I, I'm a person who is able to move in these kinds of spaces, and that mm. like that just like reflects that like we don't we don't know each other, mm. like we don't know about the nuances of cultural identity or about mm. how people practice or how people build movement, in countries uh, like across the borders and that's for very real reasons but we like it's the way that like Africa has been kept from sovereignty and like if you think about the the legacy of extraction it it has real economic and very obvious social consequences but it also has cultural consequences and I think it means we can't culture make between ourselves in ways that would be so much not just transgressive but really really liberating you know like just really and and (laughs) I mean it's very obvious like the vested in interest from the global north which controls so much of our political landscape isn't geared towards us reaching any kind of sovereignty but i don't know my like my whole self has just opened up yet again to thinking about how do i how do i move how do i learn how do i connect with like the rest of this massive continent where we go through such... We have such similar histories, have gone through such similar things and just don't know each other, you know?
0: What about your experience with that word?
1: Mm. Um, so I grew up with a mom who was part of the anti-apartheid struggle. And she... if This was a big contention between us because she doesn't use the word coloured. Um, and she... Coming from her generation, she obviously wouldn't have... It was the Biko blackness, right? So, like, if you're in the anti-apartheid struggle, you are rejecting the framework from the from the nationalist government that places you into these categories and keeps you from each other, you know. So, it was... I really get it, like, at the time, to be able to access... Um, Uh, an identity and a group identity that was liberatory and that was free of those very violent constraints, it was important to to kind of smash all those subcategories because those subcategories had very real-world consequences. And to unite under the identity of blackness was incredibly important. So I I do identify as black, but I also identify as coloured. And I think what coloured mentality meant for me and for Sarah in a different way, I mean, she has her own story towards it, was the importance or the ability to occupy and embody multiple identities. So, like, my cultural experience for me, I associate with how, like, how my coloredness feels, you know? Like, but I also still understand and embody, I think, and 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 see the, like, the massive importance of of identifying as black as well. But also realizing that, there are, there are, that there are nuances with each, and like at the same time, like I can occupy a queer identity, a black identity, a coloured identity. These things don't need to be mutually exclusive. And for me, that's what the the takeaway personally from the coloured mentality body of work was: that I don't want to prescribe to anyone as long as it's not dangerous. Uh, or discriminatory offensive to anyone else, how they should identify. Because now you have someone like Patrick Miller, who wrote *The Life 1652*. That's very that was also an anti-apartheid activist mm-hmm. and very radical, but is quite big on the idea of a Kamisa identity, which also pushes pushes against the kind of political categorizations of Khoi-san or Khoi San identity and how that's been taken up into a contemporary political landscape. So you've got all these like these different ways or lexicons that one could use to to describe or to try and give name to a particular experience. So mm. for me, the multiplicity of that is quite important and mm. to allow any, to offer or to hold, hold space for that with everybody else, mm. you know.
0: So that makes me think about Sedgwick's work around queerness, not as an identity, but as a critique of identity, as a protest against identity. Mm. But at the same time, it also operates as a kind of designation of identity, too. You know what I mean? Like a non-normative or an anti-normative identity. And the ways that you're describing kind of beagle blackness fits so squarely in, in there. You know what I mean? And there's this moment, I remember for myself as well, kind of having to... And it's a strange thing, but deciding to be black,
1: you know? Interesting. So I also, I see such like overlaps between queerness and coloredness, particularly when I think about why I also hold colored is because it speaks to me of the kind of cultural displacement that I, that I, that I know is very real. Like, you know, I have a colonial surname. I have no connection to, or very little connection to a non colonized identity. Like generationally, we don't grow up with a language, like all those things that is what and it, it's not only pain, right? A culture makes itself and keeps remaking itself like colored culture in a very contemporary way but it does name to me that that kind of chasm of, of heritage and the way one comes to create and pastiche various parts of oneself through that and I think queerness is that too and what I love about queerness is that it feels like such an active word for me always which is why I choose queer instead of any L- of the other LGBTQI intersections because like you can queer something like mm. you can queer capitalism you can queer race Theory, Mm. you know, like which is reminding me a bit of what you're saying now. Like, what does it mean to to truly like self define and not to just have your blackness be assumed or uh, assumptive in a specific kind of way? Like, I think that's that's
0: quite embodying. You know know, what I mean? Mm. Where you kind of it's and it's and I think the the complexity of it is that it feels like surrendering. It looks like surrendering. Mm. And surrendering maybe is a, is a weird word to use, but it's almost accepting, not deciding. You know what I mean? It can look like accepting, not deciding, you know? Mm. And, it, and, and, and the way that it operates inside of you it's a lot more powerful, you know. And it's so private. Mm.
1: But then it's very private. But for me, I don't know if this is too express but when you start thinking about these things, you see how it spreads into the work you make. You see how it spreads into like how you view the world. And I love that you use the word surrendering because like surrendering isn't the same as giving up. It's kind of like being present to your experience. And I think that's such a nice way of like putting it. The, the kind of gift of queerness, right, is when you come into a queer identity and really start thinking about it, it... It makes you question everything else through the Mm -hmm. same framework. Mm -hmm. Like queerness just offers that possibility, really.
0: What is something that you were once unfree from, that you are free from now?
1: I was once unfree from it, and I'm free from it now. Wow, that is such a... Like, I like the framing of the question as well. Give me, like, a moment. Okay, so... Growing up, and I'm not completely free from it. I I would be lying to say I'm completely free from it. And I think that, oof, the concept of being completely free is so interesting. And maybe I have my own imaginative blocks because I'm like, capitalist, heteropatriarchy, like I would live so differently (laughs) if it wasn't (laughs) for that, like if I didn't have to like labor for money, you know. Mm. I grew up in a colored household where my grandparents were newly into the middle class. It's an assumption, but originally, like in terms of my grandparents, none of my family is from Cape Town. My grandparents are from Johannesburg on my mother's side, and my grandparents on my father's side are from the Eastern Cape in Mm Uteneg. So they moved down to Cape Town in search of like opportunity. My grandfather started working on like a factory floor, and he, uh, you know, was kind of promoted to factory manager, and my grandmother was a grade one teacher. So this means that they have a specific kind of class position within this like very small brown colored middle class class grouping in the Western Cape. And I think when you grow up in a newly middle-class household, there's this middle-class angst that there's this Deep, I can only describe it as a fear because it becomes so palpable that like the ways you need to show up, the ways the kids need to receive their education, the way p- you need to present needs to be so perfect because if you don't, like at any moment, you could just, all of it would just go away. Like you'll just lose it all. That's, yeah, and, and even when they were quite relatively secure, which I mean, it's still apartheid and all of that. And also we know how slippery the category middle class is here, you know. Mm-hmm. You can be uh, one paycheck away from not being able to pay. And then out, you know. But still, it's this, there's this positionality and then there's this fear. And because of that, for lack of a better word, generationally, I think there was a lot of secrecy about things. And secrecy in that the version that you are towards others and what's happening in your internal landscape and how difficult it is to talk about certain vulnerabilities, how difficult it is to talk about certain struggles, you know, how there's always like love, but there's, there were, I didn't necessarily grow up with, and I think a lot of us haven't, uh, with the ability to speak about vulnerabilities, difficulty, trauma, feelings, none of that. And so, and also I was a kid who read a lot, which I think contributes to this very quiet internal landscape and a very different person who presents to the world. And I think through various things, also through my partnership and my friendships and the work I've done, that is something that I've become a lot freer from. So instead of like, advocating or sp- speaking from the collective I find it easier to speak from the eye and I have less of that kind of secrecy I'm using the word secrecy very very broadly but less of an inability to like authentically express if that makes sense
0: wow yeah and what is something that um you are unfree from right now and you wish you were free from hmm
1: in the fields that i work in so i work kind of running my own arts activism projects i work in film and tv sometimes i'm always working on like different kinds of contracts i'm always like trying to juggle a million things at a time and that's because like without doing that right now it would be impossible to like meet my specific financial needs and also just like do the things that i love doing and i really just it's like that very typical like capitalist thing where I just wish that like people would be so much like we'd be all so much better off if we could just be facilitated and supported to do the kind of work that we love not have to do things to make money and I like it it hurts me Well, I'm always like pushing against like how things are so siloed as well so like NGO work exists in this silo and it's it's a lot of problems there with like resourcing and, you know, who gets the jobs and like in in inequity in that. And I think that that kind of like arbitrary classification of like, what is work that deserves payment? What is labor that deserves remuneration? And what like, and this is what we see with care work specifically, right? If South African women got paid for the kind of work that they did, they would be a lot richer. (laughs) Like, you know, like, yeah. So, you be I, hey, like, let's all just get money. Oh, I mean, <laughs> it will, and then we'll just be so much happier, and we'll actually be able to, like, do the, the work we want to do, and probably just be much better off all generally.
0: Freedom After by the Nelson Mandela Foundation is produced by Showcast Media, an original score by Subusile Kaba, and cover artwork by Paula Maneli. The Freedom After podcast is supported by the Old Mutual Foundation. My name is Nao Mohopa. Thank you for listening.